So don't be shy. Um, just a few announcements. We have a, a baby shower for baby Hargraves today and next week, and there's a crib downstairs that you can put all kinds of baby shower gifts in there. And then you can see in the bulletin, uh, in March we'll do baby girl white. Baby boy Hargraves, okay, I just saw that. Linda, shouldn't baby girl white be in pink? <laughs> and the, just thanks Isaac for that because um, that's a good lead into everybody who's going to the Anchored in Truth conference needs to meet Isaac up front right after the service so don't be shy he's a nice guy so come on up front to meet him morning we begin to prepare our hearts to worship Christ. I want to do a brief reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Henry will be reading in just a bit uh, from our scripture reading in Acts chapter 25 and a little bit from 26. I checked with him beforehand to make sure I wasn't going to step all over him because he, I'm sure he would give us a little bit of introduction to this passage. One of the things that we do is uh, read and consider the scripture. The book of Acts deals with the early history of the church. And this particular one would be an interesting section, and he'll just be reading part of it, about Paul's defense. And particularly, at the root is the very gospel of Jesus Christ connected to the resurrection. I'll read this section, though, that he details concerning the resurrection in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You may want to turn there and prepare your hearts to be able to worship Christ, thinking about the newness of life that is in Christ Jesus. The reason we worship on Sunday and not Saturday, because it's the day that commemorates the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the first day of the week. It was called the Lord's Day. And that's what we're here to, to be about. That is essential to the gospel. So I'll read just a portion of the resurrection, and then we will hear later about Paul's defense of it, uh, both before the Jews as well as before the leaders, the uh, secular leaders of his day. From 1 Corinthians 15, to prepare our hearts to worship Christ, Paul would say, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, in which you received and in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed it in vain. And he goes on to tell us what the gospel is. He says, For I deliver to you, first of all, uh, first importance, what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried. And that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Most of whom are still alive. Though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James. And then to all the apostles and Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared 
also to me. I pray that Christ has appeared to you to understand the significance of his resurrection, the gospel, the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension of Christ, and his soon return. Take a moment to prepare your hearts to worship Christ in the various ways in which we'll praise his name today. I'll give you a moment privately. You can confess your sin. You can ask God to eliminate your heart through the power of the Holy Spirit so that you might see and savor his word indeed today. Take a moment to prepare your heart, and then I'll pray for us corporately. Take a moment now. Well, Father, we come to you now praising your holy name for who you are. May we come indeed into your courts with singing and praises to your holy name, knowing who you are, truly understanding the gospel. What, what a great privilege it is then to be redeemed from the penalty of our sin and beyond that to be changed, to be regenerate of heart, to have a new disposition in life that our life is hidden, really, in, in Christ, both now and forevermore. What a great privilege it is to be called a son and daughter of God, not one that we have merited or deserved, but one that has been freely granted to us in Christ our Lord. And I pray, Father, that whatever futility anyone might be experiencing even this day, whether their frustration of, their, uh, of disease that they have to fight with, and many do, and the difficulties in time, Maybe it's a financial crisis or something going on. Maybe it's just a heartbreak, a loss that we might experience. I pray, Father, that those things, those circumstances, would not overcome the reality of the truth of our life hidden in Christ our Lord. I even pray for those that might have great abundance and, and enjoying the great pleasures of of this temporal life and experience and things that they have. Knowing that all good gifts come from you, I pray even in that circumstance we would praise your holy name. So whether we're in abundance or lack or whatever the circumstance might be, I, I pray that those things would not ultimately control our heart. Our heart would be controlled by you, recognizing who you are and what you are always doing and what you have promised to do. In the end, Lord, we are truly blessed. We're a blessed people. And what a great joy it is as your people to gather together. I pray that you will take our humble thoughts and prayers and proclamations and receive them as great pleasure. As parents would enjoy the singing and the delight of their children, so you enjoy the praise of your children. And so may we enjoy your presence even this day. I pray for anyone who is not truly in communion with Christ that today would be the day of salvation. Draw them close. May, may your word go forth and accomplish what you desire. Bring, bring many sons and daughters to true faith. And I pray, Father, that they would continue 
may we be good examples and encouragement to help them to continue to be light in the darkness, to be joy in sadness, to be peace in chaos. I pray, Father, all of this to be accomplished by you and for you and for our good and your glory. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, before we begin in worship, I want to thank Miss Julia for playing for us here this morning. It's very last minute, and we appreciate her uh, willingness. So thank you, Miss Julia. Let's all stand together and take our hymn books and turn to number 456. 456, we'll sing, How Firm a Foundation, Ye Saints of the Lord. Our foundation is on the solid rock, and it is laid for our faith in his excellent word. So let's sing about that to hear this morning, 456, How Firm a Foundation. Five hundred and two. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. Isaiah twelve two says, Surely God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid.
flip over to number 96. Number 96, and let's uh, recite the responsive reading ahead of Great is Thy Faithfulness. Amen. So number 96. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. The Lord is waiting to show you mercy and is rising up to show you compassion. His faithful love comforts us. Because of the Lord's faithful love, we do not perish, for his mercies never end. His faithful love to us, the Lord's faithfulness endures forever. Hallelujah.
Maybe seated. Good morning, church. Today we'll be reading from Acts 25, verses 13 to 27, and chapter 26, verses 1 through 8, which can be found on, in your pew Bible, starting on page 934. <clears throat> this passage describes the circumstances of Paul's defense before the Roman governor Festus, King Agrippa and Bernice, in about the year 59 AD, while Paul was being held prisoner at Caesarea. This is actually King Agrippa II, who's in this passage. He's the son of the King Agrippa who appeared earlier in Acts who was responsible for the execution of James and the imprisonment of Peter. <clears throat> and hence, uh, this King Agrippa is the great-grandson of Herod the Great. Uh, Festus hoped that he could get King Agrippa's help in figuring out what to say about the charges against Paul with which he was having trouble. Uh, because he wanted to have something definite to write to the emperor since Paul had appealed to him and he was having a hard time coming up with something. Now, let us hear the word of the Lord. Acts 25, starting with verse 13. <clears throat> now, when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There's a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it is not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had the opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. On the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then <clears throat> at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in and Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. 
but I found that he had done nothing deserving death, and as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my lord about him. Therefore I've brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, uh, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it's before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They've known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I've lived as a Pharisee, and now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I'm accused by the Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? <clears throat> Let us now look to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we come before you in Jesus' name, we thank you for all he did on our behalf, pouring out his life blood for us and becoming our wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. We pray now that you'd pour out your Holy Spirit upon us, that the church may be full, and that you would sanctify us in the truth, that the gates of hell would be battered down, and that you'd equip us for living holy lives, pleasing to you, O Lord. We are unworthy of your grace, O Lord, having sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. The evil that we would not, we have done, and the good which we would, we have not done. Wash us then and make us whiter than snow. Make each of us like the Apostle Paul, courageous in doing your will, despite what the hazards may be, and willing to proclaim the gospel at every opportunity, such that in the life you give us, we would always bring you honor and glory. We thank you for your many temporal blessings as well, including the freedom to meet openly on this Lord's Day to worship you. We'd ask that you'd strengthen and comfort those Christians throughout the world who currently lack this freedom. And we thank you for giving each of us health to be here today and remember those in our congregation who are absent due to illness. We pray that you would comfort and console them and enable them to have Christian fellowship through the electronic means that are available to them, O Lord. And if it's pleasing to you, grant that they would soon be healed and restored to us. Draw near to us now then, Empower Pastor Wayne with your spirit as he preaches. Grant that our hearts would be open to receive your word and that it would come with power to us. May we put it into practice in our lives, being doers of your word and not hearers only. Have mercy upon us then and hear our prayer for Jesus' sake. Amen.
Sing them over again to me, wonderful words of life. Let me more of their beauty see, wonderful words of life. Words of life and beauty, teach me faith and duty. Beautiful words, wonderful words, wonderful words of life. Let's all stand together and take our hymn books and turn to number 338. Let's sing the first and last verses of Wonderful Words of Life, 338. Blake, Julia, and the church. One of those wonderful words we'll be talking about is in that hymn, Sanctification, and I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10, and we'll jump from there to Colossians chapter 3. We'll spend most of the time in Colossians chapter 3. Julia, I don't want to um, exalt you too much, but I just really appreciate you stepping up. When we first came to this church, there wasn't many people. And Jerry, Linda, and a few others. And I was successful running off everybody except Jerry and Linda. And, and we, one of the things that we did was we prayed quite a bit for someone to come and help us with the piano. We didn't orchestrate it. We just prayed and trust God that he would bring those that would be a part. And Julia was one of the first to step up and come in. What a great blessing it has been to have you. She suffered a, a, a number of illnesses at times and different things, and that has hindered her considerably. Um, but one of the things I really appreciate about, and this is just to point you out, but as an example to all of us in the church too, is the idea of, of faithfulness, as we talked about. You know, uh, That's one of the great characteristics Jerry has displayed and has been really a backbone in the church, and something you have too. And... You know, we were in a, a great need. Right now, if I can think of it, we actually have five people that could play piano and perhaps more that haven't told me. <laughs> because I might have to ask, right, Blake? Except sickness, and we, we, we had uh, three that normally would and, and were out. And Julia has been faithful in serving primarily with the little ones in the nursery. And 
I want to commend you for that. And I just bring this up too, because I'm going to talk about some of that on Wednesday. A building a biblical church and how it is done. You know how it is accomplished? It is through the faithful ministry of his servants. And we uh, express it in different ways as needed. And when you're needed, called upon to do so, to do so. And, and, and what a great blessing it is for me. And sorry if I'm carrying on too much about that. But it's, it's a good witness to all of us. And I, I appreciate each of you in your faithfulness in the various ways that God has called you to serve. It has been a great privilege to serve here and to be a part of a body of Christ that wants to follow Christ. And as needed, we'll step up to serve. Our text this morning is, comes from Hebrews chapter one, uh, 10, should I say, and verse 14. If you haven't been with us, we're going through the book of Hebrews uh, exponentially. That is where I'm explaining the book, uh, essentially verse by verse, more or less. We're at chapter 10. I said the book of Hebrews is essentially a sermon. I think it's actually Paul's sermon recorded by Luke, and here it is for us, an exemplar, certainly, of first century preaching, apostolic preaching, a great call specifically to those people in his audience, Hebrews, that is Jews, who came to Christ, confessed Christ as Lord through the preaching of the gospel, and yet were struggling because the culture had a different concept of Christ, had a different concept of how to worship God, and they were torn uh, to return to their cultural roots. And the preacher in Hebrews makes a, a really strong statement of why Christ is central. There is only one mediator between God and man. It is the man Christ Jesus. There is no other. And more than any other text in Scripture, he, he emphasizes this mediatorial work of Jesus Christ. And to, to them, the Hebrews, they understood what it meant to be a priest, that is a mediator, that they would have one. And then and, and a special one, a high priest. Well, he would say that Jesus Christ is indeed our great high priest. It is the only reason we would have a connection with God is through that mediator, Jesus Christ. And one of the main things that he mediates, of course, is our reconciliation to God. We might call that salvation. Within that concept of salvation is another doctrine that we talk about called sanctification. In, in, in short, sanctification just means to be made holy. You, you see, you, you will not stand before God unless you are perfectly, absolutely righteous and holy. It isn't a matter of, oh, I'm a pretty good person, and so God will accept me in the end. No, sorry, it doesn't happen that way. It, is, it doesn't take pretty good. It takes absolute. It takes absolute perfection. And then you say, well, nobody's perfect. If you have any children, they'll remind you of that next time you try to discipline them. And that would be true, except for one. There was one who is perfect, that is the man, Christ Jesus. This is why he was born, he lived and uh, through all stages of life and lived in absolute perfection all the way. He alone did all righteousness. He fulfilled all of the law. Everyone else fails, at least at some point. And if you fail at one point, you're guilty of it all. Guilty of what? Condemnation. And so it is only in Christ Jesus then you can be, as the text would say, perfected, brought to a place where you could then draw near to God. 
The only reason God would hear my prayers is because of the mediatorial work of Jesus Christ. I mean, we think we pray, and, and God would hear us anyway, but, but the preacher of Hebrews is emphasizing the reason you have that drawing near to the throne of grace is through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. He makes, notice if you're in chapter 10, he makes perfect those who draw near. You have to be perfect to draw near to God. I told you the illustration before. If you, if you use the imagery of the sun, you just couldn't look at the sun or draw near to the sun. Why? You, you in the state that you exist as a human being, you would go blind or burn up. Right? And in the state of imperfection, you draw near to God to that degree. No, you wouldn't stand. You would burn, go blind, burn up, whatever. You'd be in great condemnation. And so there has to be a making perfect, that is, a making righteous, a making holy. How is that accomplished? By your good works, which you do, that is almost good? No, it isn't good enough. It is by the perfection that is in Jesus Christ. Now, our focus, where I'm going to jump off from this point, to go back to a reference that I started last week, and I hope to finish it this week, but if not, there's always next week, right? Any case. So notice verse 14 in Hebrews, chapter 10. He's talking about this single offering of Jesus Christ. And remember, his audience is used to the idea of a sacrifice and an offering. He's already preached up to this point about Christ who is, their, is our offering. All of these are symbols that pointed to the reality who is Jesus Christ. He is the substance of that offering and by his offering, his single offering, notice verse 14, he has then what? Perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Notice this phrase, being sanctified. Again, sanctification just means made holy. Well, did, did he make us perfect so we could draw near? And then what's this process that seems to be implied here of being sanctified? Th that, that is the idea of being able to have that perfection that is granted to you in Christ Jesus, that is expressed by a repentance and faith, that is his grace, it will accomplish that perfection to stand before God. However, it's demonstrated in this life. That's the idea of being sanctified. That is practically working out that which God has worked in you to be more like Christ. What was Christ? Perfect. You say, are you going to be perfect in this life? No, but we'll be conforming to Christ, perfecting and notice, it is, is his work, it's based on his sacrifice, that this is accomplished. It isn't by you just trying to do good or be a little better. It's about Christ's sacrifice, and therefore he gets all of the glory. That is his grace. You say, well, if there's any improvement in my sanctification, that is, in my holiness. I'm demonstrating those things that look more and more like Christ and a lot less like the natural me. That's because of his work. It's rooted and fundamentally founded on that very sacrifice of Jesus Christ. 
So it's not only that Christ's sacrifice enables us to draw near to God in the eternal state, he, it is through his sacrifice that we are continually drawing near, that is, growing in that grace of his in this very life that you will be enabled to live a lifestyle that is increasingly pleasing to God. And, and, and it is a great imagery to think with these children how they would honor you when they obey you. And you teach the children to do that, right? Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. It's because when children obey their parents, it demonstrates that they are honoring their parents or glorifying their parents just as we might that of God. And parents represent God in the home, and they honor you, and it brings you then glory. Well, that's the idea as you increasingly display this work of God in your heart. It actually pleases God. He delights in that. We call this concept of practical sanctification, and that is being worked out by the work of Christ demonstrated in our life. Now, I'm going to go ahead for our reading, since we've read through this chapter in Hebrews a number of times, uh, I'm going to pick up here, for the sake of time, in Colossians 3. So you can go ahead and turn there now. We gave the background to it, and we've already been on this text several weeks. <clears throat> but I want to talk about sanctification, this being sanctified in a further way, and I'll do so by Paul's letter to the church at Colossae. And it's Colossians chapter 3. We started it last week, and I'm going to try to flesh it out. But I'll go ahead and now read it in its full, in its full context to verse 17 of chapter 3. The apostle writes this to the church, and, and notice the fundamental foundation. This is to those that are in Christ, and he talks about the position at the very beginning. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Examples, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. And these you too once walked. Notice that. You too once walked. When you were living in them. But now you, you must put, a, put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Don't, don't lie to one another. Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. Talk about practical righteousness. And you, you have put on the new self, which, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all in all. Put on them as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Put on what? 
compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, you must also forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which you indeed were called in one body. Be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And the thankfulness in your heart to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let us pray. Oh, Father, grant us insight into your word. May the Holy Spirit illuminate our hearts so that we would know the depth increasingly of who you are and all that you have done and are doing. And may it be manifested in our own affections, attitudes, and actions. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, I think last week I spent some time trying to set a peg, if you will, to hang the rest of this on. And that is this application of the, our positional righteousness in Christ is demonstrated in our life. And I think really a key to that is to recognize the position of all who are in Christ Jesus. All who have repented and believed on the Lord Jesus Christ have been made perfectly holy, could be certainly called saints. They, they did in the New Testament time. I know we don't use that language much this day. We think of saints as somebody who accomplishes great things or they're just something great about themselves. Really, a saint points to the fact that Christ is great. It's what he accomplished. And he will work it out in the life of the believer. We call this sanctification. And here in this text here, Paul calls the church then to, to focus in Colossians about our new life in Christ. Just as Christ has been raised from the dead, so for those that are in Christ, they have been raised as well to walk in a newness of life. So it is based on that. It's based on that, then you'll have the motivation, if you will, to take care of those aspects that you can think of as vices or negative aspects. Notice verse 5 in our text. He says to put to death what is earthly in you. And then he enumerates some of them and calls them idolatry. And that is the right way to think about sin. It is idolatry. It isn't just the fact of some little object that you might be bowing down to. The idolatry ultimately focuses on the heart. That is, exalting something over God. And God has established those things that are morally right or virtues. And to go against them, of course, is going against God. It is saying, I will choose my way instead of God's way. I will glorify myself as opposed to glorify God. And 
that is a call then because of our new self in Christ to then actively engage in putting to death what is in you. Again, I'll quote Owen, be killing sin or it'll be killing you. And that's a good way to think about it. Every day, every morning, every moment of the day, think about that aspect here of killing sin, of destroying it in your own life. Don't let it flourish. Don't let it fester. It's like weeds that must be pulled. And and again, this isn't a work of the flesh. This is a work of the spirit. And it is based on and rooted on that relationship that you have in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, the alternative here is, and and a good warning to this church at Colossae, verse 6, he says on account of these things, and is why it's so important, is not only that God has changed the very nature of your being if you're in Christ, and because of that, you have a disposition to at least want to kill sin, and then a call to do it, and you do so. Why? Because of the wrath of God is coming, verse 6. The wrath of God is coming, and it isn't just talking about a future judgment. It's talking about the judgment now. In other words, if you don't put to death those things that are earthly in you, if you're not actively engaging on them, you are subjecting yourself, at very least, to the wrath of God. The wrath of God is being revealed constantly on those that are in rebellion against him, unbelievers, that is, not just in a future time, which certainly will come in, in final judgment, but that wrath is being revealed to those that would rebel and reject God's truth. It is being revealed right now. And here, I invite you to look at Romans chapter 1 and verse 18. Hold your place in Colossians. We'll get back there in a week or two. Uh, Romans 1. I think it's important to to recognize what he means by the wrath that is coming. Not just future, as we might think of hell, but right now in temporal judgment, futility, and failure. And might I add, for those that are in Christ, I'll just clarify this, that God's wrath is, you're not subject to God's wrath in the judgment aspect. Uh, the the, uh, the uh, actions against uh, those things that are vice and not virtue for the believer are disciplinary. And you'll read about that when we get to Hebrews chapter 12. God has a redemptive purpose in it for those that are believers. That is, he will not allow you to stay in that state, he's going to drag you out as a good parent would do with a child. A child that is in, a, in, in, in trouble, they're going to go drag them out and rescue them. Even if it hurts a little, even if it twists their arm, because you, why? you don't want them to die. And that's what God does, and for the believer, it's different. For the unbeliever, those that are in a state of rebellion, they're going to feel the full wrath of God, and here it is demonstrated in Romans 1, and if you're in verse 18, 
And here he says that. This is the same writer. This is Paul, but to the church of Rome. He says, for the wrath of God, verse 18, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. That's what I'm talking about. Rebellion against God, right? Who, and in their unrighteousness, do what? They suppress the truth. The imagery here, by the language that is used, suppressing the truth, is the imagery of pushing back on a giant spring. Not a little tiny spring that has a little pressure, but the biggest spring of all. This is why people inebriate themselves. This is why people engage in all kinds of entertainment and different kinds of things, drugs, all kinds of stuff, just to push God out of their mind. They have to suppress it. They know what is true. They have to suppress it. And so this wrath is going to be expressed even in this life. And I'll tell you how it's expressed, by the way, by, here's the words, futility and failure. Okay? That's what happens. And you know it. Any of those on the list and more, the idolatry of your heart, follow your own way in that regard. And guess what you're going to get? A wasted life. You're going to get futility. You're going to get frustration. You're going to get uh, failure. Follow God, that is, honor and glorify him. Guess what he promises? Flourishing. You you want human flourishing? Then follow God. This is God's design. Don't play with this kind of fire. So this is what is done by those that are in rebellion against God. And for those that are have been regenerate, we're called then to do the opposite. And, and he gives a reason why, by the way, here, why folks are without an excuse in verse 19, because they know. It's very plain to them. God has shown it to him. that They know what is right. They just have to create a word salad to translate, to really uh, try to uh, speak in a different way in which they somehow mitigate what's going what on and, and the reality that actually exists. They're foolish. And he'll talk about it. They're thinking they're wise, but they're really foolish. Because they know. They know what is right and wrong. We all know. God has made it plain, he says. And he tells him one aspect of it, really even his invisible attributes, verse 20, <coughs> and his eternal power and divine nature, they've been clearly perceived even ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. The word made here is the word from which we get poem, poema. It, it, it means a, not, not just something that is arbitrarily constructed, but something that is carefully constructed, purposely constructed. If you have a poem sitting there, you know this takes great care and great uh, art, if you will, to, to combine this in a such and such a way that it expresses something incredibly meaningful. That's the imagery here of the earth in which we exist right now. Even in the fallen state, it is absolutely incredible. From the very minute to the, the very maximum. You look look up, look down, look inside and out, and we'll never get to the end of it because there's more. Because God is much bigger than we are. So they're without excuse. <coughs> God has made them known. They knew God, verse 21. But they didn't honor him as God. That's what we mean when we keep throwing down these words like, and I like glorify, it's good, but you have to know what it means. It means honor. That's, that's another 
aspect of it within the range of meaning. They didn't honor God. They didn't glorify God. That is, they didn't obey God. They didn't follow his way, his rule. They, they chose their own way. Oh, yeah, that's idolatry, isn't it? Rather than honoring and worshiping God. And so, they didn't give thanks to God. But instead, they come, they become, here it is, futile in their thinking, and, full, and their foolish heart were darkened. That's the futility I'm talking about. Their minds now are futile. You want to hear futile minds? Just go listen to some political debates. It's just unbelievable. And some of the stuff that people keep saying. It, I listen to some of it. I try not to. But you have to keep up with it a little bit. And, and people talking about all kinds of stuff. Th- these people are, here it is, foolish. F- foolish in the, f- in the sense that, you know what a fool is, they say there is no God. That is, they do not recognize God and his authority. That's what we mean. We don't mean foolish in the sense of silly. This is a fool in the sense that he doesn't recognize and doesn't honor God. And, but, but notice here what happens. And connect this to the wrath of God being revealed in verse 18. It says, their hearts were darkened. Heart means primarily here the mind. It does include the infections as well, because that's related. But it's not just emotional aspect here. It is then their minds are darkened. That is, they can't see the light, hence futility. They have a mind that is no mind. You're sitting there talking about obvious black and white things, and all they can see is the color of the rainbow. They have all kinds of perspectives. They're foolish. But they claim to be wise, verse 22, And then they become fools. This is God. You know what the wrath being revealed is? God will give you what you want. You want that? It's going to destroy you. It's going to bring about futility. It's going to bring about foolishness. It's going to bring about failure. And the wrath being revealed is, you know what? God says, you want that? You can have it. That's wrath in this temporal life. That's judgment. And he'll go ahead and explain it here. And he, he says, well, you, you exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. He's talking about idolatry. And again, it's not just expressed in these objects, but in all of those selfish uh, desires and actions that are in rebellion against God. And, and here it is, as clear as it can be, verse 24, therefore God gave them up. That's... That's the wrath being revealed right now. They give them up to the lusts of their heart, to impurity, ultimately dishonoring their own bodies among themselves. Why? They exchange the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creator, a creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. The, that creature right there for most ultimately would be self, okay? Self-worship. I'm, I'm going to do what I think is best, what I want. I'll, I'll make up my own decisions irrespective of what God would say. Well, that's going to lead to futility, failure, and foolishness. You get an F on your report card. God gives them up then, verse 26, to dishonorable passions. And he, and, he, and he gives one that is so obvious no one can miss. 
except for people in our day. It's heartbreaking, really. I, I don't say this to be hurtful. I say this to be helpful when I run across this, particularly for you and teaching your children. And, and I've heard Christian people that have gone astray on this particular issue because our culture has a totally different perspective on things. Guess what? The culture's wrong. God is always right. And if you really love someone, you would tell them the truth. You would rest them, rescue them from the futility, from the perishing, from the foolishness. Speak the truth in love. It is loving to speak the truth. To be careful in some respects, I understand. But here, again, an, an obvious one. Men, he, he uses here. It, women, verse 26 Dishonorable passions, he calls it. What's dishonorable? And specifically here, women exchange their natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men, likewise, gave up the natural relations with women who were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts, and men receiving in themselves the due penalty of the error. Now, I want you to note that this is obvious, that, that, <clears throat> that, that you, you have to be highly educated <laughs> to, to, to believe anything different than this idea, what's obvious about natural relations. Okay? I want to get to the details. You, you understand it, because this is so obvious and so clear. And then to create an entire perspective in a world in, in which somehow this is not only tolerated, but celebrated... Again, what, what are you doing? This, you're experiencing the wrath of God. Because why? God will then give you the due notices, the due penalty of their error. Because the safeguards that God has put in, the rules that he has put in, are to bring about life. This will bring about death. And you already know. I don't need to get into details about disease, death, and everything else that is the result of it. But I'll make one more point, and that's verse 28, since they didn't see fit to acknowledge God. See, that's the problem. You know, what's the basis for, and, and this is one specific circumstance in which we all fully understand, but it applies to everything else, okay? The whole of the list plus more. They, they didn't see fit to acknowledge God. What does it mean? To, to obey God, to recognize Him, to follow the pattern He has set up, to follow His design. Instead, you chose the disorder of your own way, which is going to lead to destruction. Then God gives them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. You see that? And you say, well, that, that's the wrath of God being revealed. God gives them up. See? God gives them, you want it? You can have it. It will destroy you. This is the natural state of man since the fall of Adam. So no wonder this becomes popular. This becomes the culture of the day. The trajectory towards destruction. And even in using in this analogy, and you know how it transfers, I mean, God has designed to bring about human flourishing in life. You need a man and a woman to do that, to repopulate, to continue to grow. That, that command has not been retracted. 
It was re-emphasized after the flood. Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. You know what? We need one another. That's how God is designed for us to survive, not as isolated beings, but together, working with one another. We, we need more people, not less. God can take care of the population explosion, which is none. In fact, it's a quite a reduction right now, significantly in many cultures. And partly, I would say, because of this wrath being revealed, it, 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 it doesn't create order. It creates disorder and destruction, and it's falling apart. But this charges to the church, though. He, he's using that even in the church of Rome to, dis, to, to warn those that within the church on how to, to practice and to behave. And now we're back into Colossians, Colossians chapter 3, which also, again, that's who I'm ultimately preaching to, is the church, is to, to, to recognize this concept. Teach your children this. Because prior to Christ, you had no real protection against the destructive forces of sin. Do you see verse 7? In these you two once walked and were living in them. Okay. If it wasn't for God's grace, there go you and I. And I know some of those aspects are hard to understand. You say, well, I probably not going to do this or that. Well, it doesn't matter. Any of the idolatry of your heart brings about God's wrath, and he will give you to greed as much as he would to lust, disordered passions as much as ordered passions that are taken too far that will absolutely destroy you. But that's who you once were, and you were living in them. That, that's the natural state of man. God has to change the very heart. And, and you can just make a note of this verse. I'll read it for you because I've read it before. Uh, you can make a note of it. If you want to turn, you can. But I'm coming back to Colossians. Just as a cross-reference for this is 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, where Paul tells another church, the church of Corinth, that had a lot of issues there. He says, don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Think about this. The unholy, those that are not perfectly righteous before God. They're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. They're not going to heaven. Don't be deceived. And then he gives this list of examples of unrighteousness. Remember, it, it's anything that's against God and his law, his design. He says, don't be deceived. Neither sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, or men who practice homosexuality, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, or swindlers, none of them are going to inherit the kingdom of God. Well, then you, you're in trouble. So what are you going to do? He says, well, such were some of you. Okay. So that's the distinction. And that's why you need a mediator, Christ. You don't need to be a little better. You need to be perfect. And you're not going to accomplish it on your own. It is Christ. And then he'll say, you were washed you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is a, the Spirit here is the dynamic work of God's grace in your heart, changing that very nature of who you are to a new self. 
in Christ, washed, sanctified, and justified, declared righteous, if you will, clean from all of the transgressions that you have done. And by the way, all that you will ever do, because if you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And if you ever, if you ever grasp that in your heart, it's, it's one that would cause you then to respond in great praise and glory of his grace. And he sanctifies you here, and that's the topic that we're on. Sanctification in here specifically is setting you apart to, to, to make you different okay, from the inside, cleaning you up and putting you forth to display the glory of his grace in your own life. Such were some of you, but now you're not that. You're something else. Back to Colossians 3. Because of that, because you have been sanctified or set apart, you're, you're no longer whatever characterizes the rest of the world. You're, you're a new creature in Christ Jesus. So in that case, notice verse 8. He says then, you, and here again, another <coughs> charge on the negative aspect of what you should do. And he's going to use this imagery of putting on garments. But now you must put them all away. And he gives a slightly different list. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. This is one of the reasons, by the way, I don't really prefer innuendo. We need to always be in consideration of that. Obscene talk from your mouth. Beyond that, don't then lie to one another. Why? Because you put off the old self with its practices. He's saying that that was your lifestyle. Now you have a different lifestyle. You, you have a new and holy garment. Take off the filth and put on Christ. That's what he says in the next verse, verse 10. And you have put on the new self which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator, specifically Christ. How do you know the creator? How do you know what God is? He's a spirit. You see Christ. Read about him in the Gospels. You want to know how to live. After that, Christ. And then all the, the apostles who spent time with Christ taught us in the New Testament, in the epistles. That's why we have them. So we can learn to be like Christ. Christ. I want you to see in verse 10 this phrase here, you have put on. It's what I'm emphasizing at the very beginning. He says, take off the old, put on the new, but then, then he puts it in this way, well, you have put it on. Because you have to re remember that, that positionally it's, it's there. That there is nothing that I need to do atone for or accomplish to be able to stand in the presence of God because Christ has already accomplished it on the cross. He said it's finished. So if I were to die of a heart attack here in a minute, don't you have a heart attack? I'm, I'm hanging in here. But if I would, it, absence from this body then will be immediate presence from the Lord. And if I'm there, by the way, I'm not coming back, so don't pray for me to come back. <laughs> I'd just rather stay in his presence, particularly now. There's nothing, what I'm saying, to, to then 
be perfected. It, it's, it's based on Christ's perfection. You don't go to some little purgatory place for people to pray for you to get out and to get better. Christ has already accomplished it. So there's a concept, and you have to think about this, I think, if you want to be grow in sanctification in your own life, is first recognize, hey, I, I have these, quote-unquote, holy garments, if you want to think about that way. Or I already have this new self, the new person that I really am. It, it is what Christ has done. We've read about it in Hebrews chapter 8 through 10 as it began talking about the new covenant from Jeremiah 33. And then he's going to close the section in Hebrews 10 with this same concept that I think is essential to understand. Remember, I'm going to make a covenant. That is a promise. Here, what, what's your promise? What's, what's your promise that is fulfilled now in Christ? In the Old Testament, he said, I'm going to make a covenant because it hasn't been uh, com completed yet until Christ came. What's the new covenant? I will put my laws in their hearts and write them on their minds. So instead of an external compulsion to follow and change, now there's an internal desire to want to obey God. So it isn't a list of rules of do's and don'ts. It's a, it's a rule of Christ in one's own heart. This perfecting work has already been accomplished in Christ, and that is what we call the new self. So he says, now act like it. Live like it. Be, be reminded of it. The, the devil would lie to you and say, well, I'm just an angry person. No, you're not. That's the old you. You need to take that off. Well, how am I going to take it off? Put on the new you, who you really are. That's the focus here. And it is accomplished through the power of the Spirit. It isn't through the flesh. This is the power of the Spirit. And to see that work out in your own life where you actually do occasionally, not as much as you'd like, but, but, but stop indulging in vice and, and practice virtue at some respect, and you realize at that moment, you know, I only accomplished that through God's mercy towards me, his grace, his favor, the working of the Holy Spirit in, in my life that made me a new creation in Christ. And that's what he's calling the church then to, to reflect on, the, the real you. You're in Christ. You're perfectly righteous in him. Now demonstrate that in your own life through the power of the Spirit. You know, one way it's demonstrated and he shows here in a in a practical way, a unity in, if you're still in Colossians, if I haven't lost yet, in verse 11, I think that's what he's getting to. There's not Greek, Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all in all. Here you have, yes, were there, were there Greeks and Jews? Yeah. Were there circumcised, uncircumcised? Yeah. Barbarian? Yeah. All of these actually exist, and he's trying to give, if you, you look here, you, he's giving opposites of characteristics of the natural state of people, points to their ethnicity, religious practices, social practices, practical things in the slave and free issue in, 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 in work. Yeah, a lot of distinctions. 
But what unifies? Christ. That, that's what brings that about. The, the, the futility of the mind of men is, is amazing. And, and I know they mean well, but they're foolish when they sit there and say, well, our real objective is to, to be diverse. I mean, how dumb can that be? Our objective isn't to be diverse, it's to be unified. That's how we'll be strong. With diverse components, sure. But our, our objective is really to be unified. And what will bring about unity in the human condition? Christ, that's it. Everything else is just artificial and temporal and will fall and will fail. Erect some sort of covenant and agreement and uh, treaty and all of that. Guess what they're going to do? They're going to break it. Because of their own sinful heart, that's the problem. The only covenant that's going to work is the covenant of Christ. This new covenant where he's going to change the very heart and change the way we actually engage with one another. Our strength is in our unity in Christ. And it's a great union that then brings together the very body of Christ. Look at verse 12. I'll just have to drop down to finish this up. I want to say one other aspect, but look at verse 12. He reflects back on one more time, and I think this is critically important. If you want to be like Christ, you want to grow in Christ, you want to bring about unity with one another in Christ, he says in verse 12, and and I about want to weep every time I think about this because he's looking at first the position of who you are in Christ. He says, then put on as, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Do you see those three right there? That's the position of all that are in Christ. You're not in Christ because you made a good decision. It's because he chose you. And I know that's hard to understand. Theologically, And people argue about that and carry on. I get it. But, but you're really missing the bigger picture. It's God who says, I'll, I'll take that one. And not because of the merit by which you, you have somehow deserved that. It's called unmerited favor. God granted it to you. He looks down the sea of humanity and says, I'll, I'll have this one. Why? Because he desires to display his mercy and grace. And when he chose me... I can, I, can, I can definitely guarantee you that's mercy and grace. And if you don't understand it, I do, personally. And if you're in Christ, I hope you understand that. The only reason that you are in Christ is because of God's favor granted to you. But beyond that, he then makes you holy. That's the idea of sanctification. Set apart, perfect, righteous before him. And then this third word, beloved. That's the state of all who are in Christ. This is why, friends, you, you, you can lose every person that ever loved you or that ever cared for you. You haven't lost much because Christ loves you. You're in a state of eternal love, if you will, in Christ. So I don't, 
In the temporal state, it hurts. I understand if you have uh, various things that, that go on. And you may feel lonely. You may feel rejected, whatever the case might be. But, beloved, don't forget this position. There is no one that ever loves you greater. And I'm not a good father, but I'm, I'm kind of good sometimes. Just don't ask my son. He's probably listening today. But I try to be a good father. I think I am to some degree, but I'm certainly not perfect. God is a good father. He's perfect. I would sacrifice for my children, all of them. Uh, I have. And I know you would, too, for yours. You, you care for people. And maybe it's your spouse, maybe it's a friend that you truly, dearly love. What, whatever level that rises to, it, it, it doesn't even make a mark on the measurement of God's love. It is infinite and greater than you can imagine. That is the state of who those are in Christ. Now, now, doesn't that change everything when you look at, oh, I'm asked to give this up and to, and to take this on? Yeah, I think it does. And, and, he, and he then says, because of that, express then compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And then to bear with one another. If, if one has a complaint, then forgive one another, as the Lord has forgiven you. And that's the basis on which all of these things are expressed. Compassion, kindness, humility, meekness. Look to Christ. He, he fills all this in perfection. So, so that, that's a call to do this. This will bring about the unity by which we would desire in any kind of relationship. But ultimately, the focus here is primarily within the Christian body and the church. He says, above all these things, verse 14, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Love, I, I, I'd like to go on with it, but you can find that in 1 Corinthians 13, if you're not familiar, a great expression of it. Love, love is patient and kind. I would just summarize it that way. Patient and kind. Kind means grace. Patience means mercy. Let's just stop there, and you can go read the details later of how those two things are expressed. That one kind called love. You look on one side, it's kindness. You, you look on the other side, it's, it's, mercy, it's patience. You look at it a little bit further, you say, oh, yeah, that's grace, that's kindness. Grace is giving somebody something they don't deserve without wanting anything in return. You're not doing it because you're trying to earn favor. It's just granted. What kind of favor does God give by giving you his grace? It just reflects the fact that he gives grace. Mercy is not giving you what you deserve or being patient. Oh, yeah, they deserve this, so I'm going to bop them on the head. God doesn't do that. He's patient. He's, he's kind. He is merciful. All right. So then, finally, verse 15, let then the peace of Christ rule in your heart, which indeed you are called in one body. You see how he ties this all up with a bow? This unity that I talked about in the, in the diversity in verse, what was it, 11? How is that resolved? How does peace come? It comes only one way, for Christ to be the ruler and reigner in each one of our hearts. You know, because we submit to Christ, 
parents teach your children, obey me because you're obeying Christ. You're honoring God. And in each of us, for us to then to have some sort of unity and peace among ourselves, it is because Christ then rules in our heart. I'll finish with this. Famous last words. Um, in verse 16. Because I want to give you then, not just in your mind an idea, I think that's primary to know first, but then how to practically work that out in your life. You say, well, I would really, Wayne, like to be more in practice of who I am in position. So how do I see more of that in my life? And verse 16 gives you the answer. Succinctly, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. That's how. This is one of the reasons why we read this text of scripture and encourage you to do so. We memorize it. We teach it. We sing it. We pray it. Every aspect of what we do revolves around his divine revelation. This is the word of Christ. The very beginning spoke of Christ. In the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. That's how it begins. As Revelation unfolds, we understand it is Jesus Christ who made all things, John 1. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. The life was the light of man. We read continually through the scriptures and we understand even in the book of Hebrews where we're at, that he holds all things together by the word of his power. So it's created and it continues through Christ. And it is Christ who is coming again. The book of Revelation says, even so come quickly, Lord Jesus. This is all about him. Let this dwell in your heart richly. Does it mean you're going to put it on your, as a pillow and put your head on it and somehow by osmosis gain the information. No, you'll have to read it. You'll have to hear it, okay? You'll you have to hide it in your heart, put it in your mind. Hide it in your heart that you wouldn't sin against God because these words keep coming up. This is what you think about. This is what is on your heart and mind. And beloved, let me tell you how to really help you to hide God's word in your heart. You're going to need it on your deathbed. And I've met many saints in that position. And to know God's grace is sufficient for them even in that hour is a beautiful thing. And one of the ways they know it is because it's really been part of their life. They understand. It gives direction and meaning. He, he expresses it here. This would then, why we would then teach one another to uh, and admonish one another. This is both the positive and the negative. And notice here in our text, verse 16, it's the one another. That is, here is to the body uh, of Christ. It isn't just me. Yeah, I have a special role to come here and communicate and proclaim and to teach to the degree, but notice it is the one another. That is, we're to engage with one another. And the beautiful thing is we gather together to, to worship Notice he specifies specifically psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, giving the whole range. When we do this music, 
And I really appreciate again Julia stepping up to help us with the company, the music. Um, but in whatever circumstance, we're, we're not about putting on some sort of great professional show. I think it's really good. What we're about is glorifying God, expressing uh, who He is, and worshiping Him. That's the imagery here of the, 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 the Psalms, of course, are those that are written in Scripture, 150 chapters, if you will. <laughs> That's the songbook of the Old Testament. It's written in Hebrew. Occasionally we'll try to structure it for English so we can th sing it, and thanks, Blake, for doing that from time to time. But I think this, the, the Psalms here, particularly not only the book of Psalms, which they did, that's the psalm book that they sang, but also the very words of God, which if you look at the second one, which is the hymns, those are expressions of God and who he is, and we sang much hymns. Spiritual songs probably have to do with those things that are uniquely uh, personal about, like, I have decided to follow Jesus, these kinds of things, your, your personal commitment uh, in that way about a spiritual song. Th these are the means of grace that God will use to bring about sanctification, and primarily it is his word. As Jesus would say, sanctify them by thy truth, thy word is truth, John 17, 17. He will use discipline in your own life, as I already alluded to from Hebrews chapter 12, which we'll get to, that is things in your life to bring you closer to him, including affliction. And I know this is a really tough thing. But remember, beloved, that whatever afflictions that you might go through, sickness or illnesses, and even to the point of death, that his grace is sufficient for you. And finally, godly influence. And that is why we gather together to worship Christ together, to be part uh, of one another and to engage with one another as iron would sharpen iron. And so Christians gather together, not to fulfill some sort of legal commitment, but to grow in grace and knowledge together to ultimately glorify God. So that indeed, whatever we would do in word or deed, verse 17, we would do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let us pray. Oh, Father. I suppose all of us would like to be more like Christ. I pray that we would use the means by which you have granted to us to bring that about. Not that we would be some trophy to sit on a shelf, but be truthfully pointing to Jesus Christ our Lord. Bless us and keep us. May we grow in grace the knowledge of you. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to give you a moment what we do privately here. If you haven't been with us, just take a moment privately where you're at to think on these things. Respond not to me, but to Christ. If you do need to speak with me, I'll be glad to talk to you after the service or one of the elders as well. We'll be glad to talk, but take a moment to reflect on his word.
Oh, Father, I pray that you would give us the hope and joy to look for Christ, who is indeed our life, that when he appears, we will have that joy of being with you throughout eternity. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's all stand and turn to 560 in our hymnals. Oh, how I love Jesus. 560. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Amen and amen. We're dismissed. Thank you.